sandpaper and steel wool scotch bright can be your friend don't use that stuff in the metal of your live firearm but on a denix that's that would be the route i take beat it up a little bit but don't make it look like something that survived an apocalypse Hey everybody, coming to you live from snowy Massachusetts. This is the Reenactors Corner. This is Chris here again, our very first episode of 2024. I'd like to say Happy New Year to everybody. And I'm excited today to welcome back on a guest who we last had on the podcast way back in 2021, Paul Kramars. Thanks for coming back on the program. Hey, thanks, Chris. Pleasure to see you again. It's uh, not so snowy where I'm at. I'm talking to you live from the Middle East. It's a little sandy out here. Yeah, uh, Paul, you haven't had much opportunity to do any reenacting in recent months because you are currently enacting out there trying to keep the peace in the Middle East. How is that going? It's pretty wild. Um, I got to say that the biggest difference is the, the time one. But I am able to focus on some projects, both to better myself professionally as well as for the hobby itself. I've been digging deep into a lot of uh, weapons-based research. I bought some books. I just finished reading Storm of Steel for World War One. So it's been very productive for myself out here. Excellent. So for people who haven't been listening for three years, why don't you just give like a really quick intro into sort of um, what you do in World War II reenacting? Sure. So I've been involved with World War II reenacting since 2007. I've been doing, you know, Wehrmacht uh, German since 2008. Chris and I were in the same reenactment group, Third uh, Panzergrenadier Division, back then until we formed our own group in 2014, uh, Sikorung's Regiment 195. Um, we split off. I, I moved on to focus more on World War One Doughboy and a standard infantry impression with uh, my friend or our mutual friend Mark. But, you know, Chris and I have been good friends for a long time, and that's really where I stand at the hobby today. Uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you again, of course, uh, when you get back. It's been um, some months that you've been gone, and you've got some months still to go. Um, I know that you are probably excited to kind of get back in the swing of things and reenacting, among many other things that you no doubt are looking forward to when you get back. Um why don't you talk a little bit about your new, sort of new, uh, reenactment group project that you and Mark are working on? Sure. So it's uh, Infantry Regiment 41. It's a mid-Atlantic-based unit because most of the members are in the you know Pennsylvania, Virginia, North, South Carolina area. Uh, myself, I'm a little bit north of them. But the idea was to create something that was thoroughly standardized in our approach, you know, right down to following the table of equipment and organization for a Wehrmacht infantry squad of 1943-44. So we're really trying to come up with something that can be used at any event, Ostfront, Westfront, 42 through 45, with just minor kit variations, and come up with a really standardized approach to make things easier for membership. So trying to mimic some of the um, core tenets of a military experience. There's a lot of uh, 
veteran presence in the group, which, you know, for some might be a great fit and for others it might not. And I, your most recent podcast about the state of the hobby and being able to find events and make what you want out of this hobby resonated with me. And I found that that's what I wanted to do. Um, that brought me joy. It, um, it was just an, an approach that I haven't done before. But, you know, I can still always go back to, hey, you know, short notice event. We're going to hang out in a bunker, wear World War II stuff, and just experience the lifestyle or camping side of the hobby. So I'm always open to everything, but what we're really trying to accomplish with our new unit is a unified approach of true uniformity and military bearing, that type of thing, just to make things easy for the membership, really. That sounds great. Uh, so our main topic today that I'm kind of eager to pick your brain about is uh, all about weapons in reenactment and kind of different ideas and approaches to them. Um, so you and I kind of have discussed this a little bit before. And of course, um, weapons, obviously, like it or not, are inherently a part of World War II reenacting. That is 100% true. No matter where you go... When you associate a soldier, right, with, like, if you form it in your mind's eye, like, what defines a soldier? It's someone who is taking up arms for either a nation, an idea, something like that, and engaging in combat. You and I both know that not all soldiers carry weapons all the time. I mean, right now, I do not have my pistol on me, my assigned weapon as a soldier. And there are times and events where you don't even need a weapon, but when you really think about it, the... A core aspect of being a soldier or a combatant is carrying one. And since this hobby is focused primarily around warfare, it only makes sense to have one. I mean, obviously there are impressions that don't require a weapon, uh, specifically for like GI reenacting. Medics generally wouldn't. uh, Clerical staff, as you've done in the past at events such as Fort Mifflin or Fort Indian Town Gap. We didn't need weapons because we were sitting behind a desk acting as a Wehrmacht uh, staff office. And, you know, also civilian impressions. If people are coming just to be a displaced civilian at an event, they don't really require one. Uh, Or anybody, like a chaplain, something like that, doesn't require a weapon. But the rank and file of the Wehrmacht, of the U.S. Army, of the Workers and Peasants Red Army, you really need to have one. And even if it's not functional, it's a part of your kit, and I think it's emblematic of being a soldier and reenacting as one. Yeah, you allude there to non-functional weapons that some people also use. Obviously, um, weapons are a challenging aspect of a kit, and for some people, more challenging than others. There are people who live in countries and in places where it's basically impossible for them to get a live weapon um, there are people who, you know, look, it's a, it's a complex subject and I, I probably don't need to delabor, belabor that point too much. Um, but, uh, you know, there are options out there for people who aren't looking to go out and buy a real live gun. Yep. I actually watched a uh, YouTube video, I believe it was from, uh, PLV Canal. It's a, uh, like a German reconstruction Web, your web page or YouTube channel, and they were reviewing the Denix reproduction K98. And I personally feel that, yeah, in countries where it is difficult to purchase live firing or blank firing firearms, deactivated ones are great. Denix replicas are okay. Same thing with Airsoft. And in countries even where you can 
you know, obtain weaponry a little bit easier, like without going into the politics of it. Sometimes there are events where it just makes sense. You know, I look at Fort Mifflin or any event where the weapon is not so much something you're going to use, but it's a prop to really flesh out your impression. Non-firing replicas at almost are a better choice. I feel it makes it easier to pack for the event because you can just throw it in your vehicle. It's not live. Um, the cost is cost associated with owning live fire weapons almost worldwide is generally higher than buying a deact or in the case of most Americans, a like a Danix or airsoft replica. And on top of that too, if it's just going to be sitting, you know, in a corner on a rifle rack, or if you're just holding it over your shoulder slung for guard duty, having a live weapon doesn't always, you know, make the experience more realistic because you're just really holding the weight and getting the appearance of it all. And I feel at some public events that might be better if you feel uncomfortable bringing a live weapon to a place. It's a great option for that. Or in the United States in particular, if you're traveling to states that aren't as amenable towards firearms, possession, ownership, or rights, it makes it easier to bring something into a state that allows for deactivated or allows for replica weapons, but maybe you don't have the permit to own it in that state for a live weapon, so you just bring the deact, and you're able to achieve the look and feel of holding a live weapon when you're not bringing one with you. So that's that's my take on using either deacts or replicas. I also believe, though, right, sometimes it's great just for, you know, set dressing, right? When you take a look at this from a perspective of either a filmmaker or someone from that line of work, you don't always need something real to stand in the background. And if you're, we do this hobby for ourselves at the end of the day. And if having a full rifle rack of, you know, replica weapons helps flesh that out, make it look more realistic, it improves the event for yourself and others that are looking in on it. And I just think it's um, an easier way to get the same result without having to bring a live one. But my ultimate uh, feeling on it is a live one is always best. Yeah, I, um, you know, I have a live K98 that I use for reenacting my rifle that I use for tactical stuff when I do that, which isn't very often. But uh, years ago, I think I realized that for me, for most of the events that I do, it makes more sense not to bring a live firearm for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. It is sort of a risk and a liability when traveling. It adds a adds a little bit of an extra element of something to be concerned about, you know, the way that you're supposed to transport these things. There are laws that have to be complied with um, or ignored at your own peril. And uh, I do have a deactivated K98 and a ZB30. Those are um, machine guns. And I also have uh, Airsoft K98 and most recently a Denix K98 that I've been using. And it just takes a lot. It takes some stress out of a lot of situations. I also, in my years of reenacting, I've been using the same K98. And I will tell you, the appearance of this weapon now is not the same as it was when I got it, despite trying my best to take care of it. Um, it's getting packed with my gear. It's getting thrown in the back of a truck. It's getting, um, you know, it's bashing up against trees and rocks and stuff when I'm running around out there in the woods. And this thing is not uh, made of titanium. It is 
the, the stock is a piece of wood and I can see that it has scratches, even deep scratches and gouges that it didn't have when I got it. And uh, I feel bad about sort of using this collectible thing as a toy in this way. The um, Airsoft one that I had, Paul, that you actually helped me to defarb years ago. I carried that thing at countless events and I have basically beat the shit out of that thing and I don't um, have any emotion about it. You know, I've practically used that thing up and it's kind of whatever because it's not a real collectible thing. So, um, you know, for me, it the, the Denix Airsoft Deact route makes sense for basically any event where I don't actually have to fire the thing to do what I'm trying to pretend to be doing. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I agree wholeheartedly. You brought up really, you know, the reality of using a collectible item, right? You know, you and I have been reenacting long enough to remember the days when you could purchase a live fire K98 in the United States for less than $250. Now, I personally feel that the K98 or any weapon is the, the largest investment you need to make in building your impression. And a Denix or an Airsoft replica is a lot less expensive than a live fire. I think even Russian capture K98s are pulling, you know, seven hundred plus dollars. I'm not too attuned as to what the current cost is, but it's almost unobtainable for some young people just due to the price increases over the past few years. And one point that you brought up is, you know, you're going to damage this stuff carrying it out in the field. I mean, I've been issued multiple weapons in my time in the Army. Um, I've had an M4, an M16, I have a pistol now. Uh, I look at it, the reality of the weapons that were issued directly to me is, you know, I take care of them, I clean them, and I make sure the maintenance is done. But at the end of the day, these things are issued to me, and I just need to make sure that they are clean and shoot. You know, if I (laughs) scratch the the receiver on my M4 or, you know, put a scratch in the slide of my uh, pistol. It's whatever, you know, I don't own it. It's government property. And it was the same issue, you know, back in the day, soldiers viewed these weapons as tools. They didn't care so much about the collectability or the value of it, as long as it fired and functioned properly as intended. And it was kept to a standard that the Spieß or the armor deemed correct. Good. You know, it's it's ready to rock and roll as opposed to, you know, myself, you uh, take cover, you dive with your K-98 at an event and all of a sudden you've planted the uh, crown of your muzzle into a rock at an event and put a nice ding in it that that's never going to come out. You know, these weapons were new only once. A lot of them went into arsenal reset or um, an armor fixed them after the war. It was reblued by the Russians, what have you. But every ding, nick, scratch that you put into a real collectible World War II firearm that's not being produced anymore is only going to hurt the value long term. And, you know, back in the day, people would say, oh, this is a beater K98 that's good for reenacting and it's not worth anything. You can take those, you know, what was considered junk 15 years ago now is commanding a high dollar value. So I'm going to go into some things strictly about the K98 um, later in our talk, just about like how to fix things, improve it, and really protect your investment and keep your weapons functioning as intended in this hobby, if, if that makes any sense, Chris. Yeah, let's let's get into that. Now, of course, the um, there were many different weapons that were used in World War II, many weapons that were used in, uh, that are used in World War II reenacting. Um, 
I think today we'll probably talk mostly about the K98. That's something that uh, you and I both can relate to and something that I know that you know a lot about specifically. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, I feel sticking with the K98 is probably the best. I mean, I'm not going to mention the M1 Garand, MP40s, G43s, MG42s. There are there are people that know a lot more about those weapons than myself. And I, you know, as a primarily you know Wehrmacht reenactor, I think the the baseline standard truly is the K98, and ultimately a lot of its derivatives of the 98 series, the VZ24, things like that. The concepts are going to remain the same. You know how you take care of stocks, wood things like that. So you can bring that across weapons platforms. But I think uh, with my research, I have books and even some YouTube channels that I'm going to mention strictly about the K-98 that I think we can dive into a little bit greater detail. Okay, yeah, like for someone who's interested in maybe achieving your level of understanding of this stuff, what are some uh, resources that people can look to for information? So there are two books I'm going to mention. One of them is well-known, and uh, it's a single book. It's called Backbone of the Wehrmacht. It's strictly about the K-98. The information, I don't want to say is dated, because a lot of it is still good, but more research has been done in you know with the advent of technology and the fact that we have all the world's knowledge on our fingertips. Uh, there's a two-book series literally just called Carabiner 98K. Both are on uh, Amazon. You can order them. Those are excellent, excellent books. And if you want to get into the history of the K98 or get into the nuances, the details of them, I highly recommend picking those up. But on YouTube, you know, if you're looking to get into uh, just listening to something like almost like a podcast, there's a channel called CN Arsenal. And uh, the guy who runs that channel goes into incredible detail about the firearms history of World War One era weapons. And granted, right, he doesn't talk about the K-98 just yet, but he has an interesting three-part series on the Gewehr 98, which, if anyone knows anything about the K-98, it's pretty much the exact same rifle in regards to the receiver, um, the cartridge, the magazine housing. The only differences between it and the K-98 are some cosmetic ones to include length, but it's the same action designed by the same man, Paul Mauser. So CN Arsenal is a great resource for firearms history. Their episodes are about an hour long, and they go into the full depth of the history of the development, issuance, and modifications of you know, pretty much every rifle in World War One, and they're branching into World War II moving forward. So those are the places I would really you know, start in learning about the K-98 or any sort of weapon system. It's true of any facet of reenacting. Books are your friend. They're expensive, but probably the best investment you can make long-term for learning. Sure. Uh, Imagine that someone is um, maybe new to reenacting, new to German reenacting, or World War II, whatever. They are looking to get a K98. Obviously, prices are kind of going to be what they are. um, But sort of beyond that, what kind of advice could you give someone or, you know, maybe some basic information that might help them to get their first K98? Okay. So definitely look for deals. Um, Ben Tracy is not a firearms guy, but everyone sees how much he's able to post and sell reenactor, used reenactor gear on Facebook, right? So a great place to look for deals is people either downsizing their collection or exiting the hobby. Ask fellow reenactors if, you know, hey, do you have a spare or something like that? Look for deals online. There are firearms website or 
sales websites online such as Gunbroker, things like that. Look at, you know, past sales, what things have gone for. Gun shows, gun stores are great, but you, you're going to want to look for deals for a reenactor one. Something maybe that has some cosmetic issues, some things that you can fix with relative ease. That's usually where I like to go. And, you know, it's always good to look for variations of the K98 that might make more sense for your impression. And, and I'll get into detail on this with like a defarbing or correcting you know, snippet in a little bit. But there are multiple different makers of the K98. Um, there are differences between early and late war manufactured ones and variants that you can look for are also the, like where they were captured, right? Everyone's familiar with Russian capture as they're known, K-98s, which were torn down, re-arsenaled, reassembled, re-blued, and they're a mixed match of parts, but they're collectible now just because of uh, scarcity, you know, there are only so many K-98s were made, but you can also look at Romanian captures. I currently am using a K-98 that was sent to Ethiopia after World War II, and it was um, made in 1942 in Germany, but it ended up in Ethiopia after the war and served there until the 70s or 80s, or then went into storage. Like the, Those are the types of variations you can look for for better deals if they're a little bit more beat up, or if things such as the uh, original Arsenal manufacturer markings were scrubbed off or the Waffenamps have been punched, peened, or sanded, ground off. Things like that are what I would look for in a reenactor rifle. Things that do make it less collectible in its own right because you're not going to feel as bad about using it in the field. And collectability really is something that's dependent on the user, right? Things that weren't collectible 10 years ago are collectible now. Who knows what's going to be collectible in the future? Who even knows what's going to be available in the future? So my advice for people looking for something new is find something that is functional. If it has minor cosmetic issues that you're willing to put in the work and fix yourself, go for it. I often look for things such as, um, oh no, it's, it's missing the rear sight leaf spring. I can buy that part for $15 and get it up and running again. Oh no, the bluing has been uh, completely worn off or wire wheeled off. I can rust blue that thing and make it look not brand new, but I can bring it back to a standard that an armorer would feel confident in issuing to a soldier. Or, you know, broken stocks, you can get a new stock. That type of stuff is what you're going to want to look for in a reenactor grade K98. Another thing to look for, right? Since we're using these things in the field and we don't so much care about the accuracy or precision of these weapons anymore, take a look at the bore. The number one way to kill the value of a firearm is if it has a bore that looks like a sewer pipe. And Chris, I think your K98 has a bore similar to that. You know, you look down it, it's pitted, it's worn, the rifling's barely gone. If you take the, um, the bullet end of a cartridge and put it in the barrel from the end as opposed to the chamber. I th if I can recall, your rifle will pretty much swallow the neck of a cartridge. You know, it's it's worn out, so you're not going to shoot well with it. What harm is there in putting blanks down that barrel for the next 10-15 years, you know? I, if I can recall, that's what your K98 was, at least. Yeah, I, I still am using the same K98 that I got when I started reenacting, and I really lucked out because I think it's like the perfect reenacting weapon. I didn't get to pick my K98. I ordered it from an ad in Shotgun News through a, a friend with a CNR license. So I didn't know what was going to come in the mail. And then I got this thing 
it has the Waffenamps peened off, which I knew that it was going to have. It's a Romanian capture thing. It's got some repairs to the stock, which I think are almost certainly post-war repairs. And um, like you say, the bore of my rifle is uh, basically shot out the thing. If I have shot live with it and it just... um, bullets impact like sideways at targets 15 feet away it it's it's not really sort of it's not something that really could be used for shooting anymore um but the advantage is that this extremely well-worn 1937 k98 i don't know whether it's just that it was used so much or what but there's like no blanks that don't work in my weapon so my weapon will shoot any blank it's perfect for reenacting. I can't really hurt it much more than it's already suffered, um, you know, with years of use in the Wehrmacht and then whatever happened to this thing in Romania. Um, but of course, like I say, I just sort of lucked into that. It wasn't even um, something that I could pick, but that was a very different era of K98 purchasing. I think it was $180 through an ad in a magazine, you know? Yeah, even adjusted for inflation, that's nothing compared to what they're going for today. And as I said, you know, earlier when you're looking for deals, the best places to look are from other reenactors, really. I I recall back in the day, um, there were some guys in our old group that could help facilitate, you know, if you needed a rifle, they had five because, you know, in 2002, they bought 10 of the things for $150 each. So I think I bought my first one, which sadly I sold a few years ago for... I think three hundred and fifty dollars in two thousand eight, and if I tried to buy that rifle today, it would probably be in the seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred dollar range. But getting into to your own one, right? Like and getting back into condition, the problem is when do you see a, a weapon in World War Two that is showing seventy plus years of use? You know, like a lot of times we go into, hey, is something more authentic to be used and beat up and show signs of wear. Yes, it is. But a lot of times you see this with people redoing helmets or taking aging or distressing of their uniforms to an almost silly extreme, right? Where something looks like it has been abused for 70 years, not abused for four. You know, it's just like the the level of... Uh, con- the level of surface patina that's been added to the weapon after 70 years of various people touching it and stuff like that sometimes looks kind of out of place. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Chris? Because like, I know you can make a helmet look silly because you're trying to replicate something that has been in a humid cellar or a dry attic for the past 70, 80 years versus just trying to make something look field-worn. Like, do you feel the same would apply to a weapon? Because I certainly do. It's just really tough with real weapons because these things sort of are what they are. They are original things that survived World War II. They have a collectible and a historic value that I think needs to be taken into account um, when any changes are made to these things. And so, you know, we can't, It, you know, this is why I'm so kind of glad to have you on the podcast talking about this because I think it is a complex um it's a complex thing to think about. It's not like a reproduction uniform or even a repainted helmet shell where you can just kind of do whatever to this thing and it's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, we really need to sort of um, 
respect the historical integrity of these things, respect the collectible value, while also trying to present something that is as realistic as possible from a reenactment perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think this gets into sort of correcting or maintaining a weapon, or in this case a K-98, that looks plausible, it looks realistic, it makes sense. Um, I can get into conservation on this real quick. I mean, a lot of people, if they purchase a Romanian capture, or in my case, an Ethiopian-used weapon, it's going to have a lot of surface rust on it, and a lot of people interpret that as patina, right? And there's a great video on YouTube called uh, Conservation 101 Stopped at a K by Mark Novak. Uh, his channel's called Anvil, and he goes into detail as to, you know, what rust really is in, a, in the eyes of collectors for a lot of things. Patina really is active rust that even though if you put oil on it, it's still eating away at the metal. And there are ways that you can preserve, conserve, and maintain your reenactment weapons and make them look a little bit more plausible to have been, you know, five years of heavy wear versus 70 and not take any value away from it. So... When it comes to defarbing or correcting, you know, any of these weapons, I think it does matter, and I think it should be done because it's part of the process of conserving and maintaining things for future use. It's resetting things to a usable standard. You can sometimes even increase the value of things by making it more correct to what it should look like. I mean, some would argue that Russian captures on their own have their own history and you shouldn't modify them, but they're wrong for portraying a World War II soldier. Let's just face the facts. So I think, you know, small corrections that people can make are should be welcomed, and if you're going to make them, sometimes you just keep the original parts because you can swap one for one and you're not really hurting anything. But the reason why I think it matters, right, is how often have you and I both seen conversations on, be it Facebook, Discord, forums, the long-dead forums from back in the day, you know, people would get into the nuances of SS camouflage or here camouflage and say, oh, well, the blob of dark brown in this little section looks like a kidney bean when it should look like, I don't know, an almond, something ridiculous <laughs> levels of nuance and tiny minutia that no one's going to notice or pick up on, right? They'll be really quick to point that out in a camo smock, but then are portraying themselves in 1940 with a K-98 that has a cupped butt plate, right? And going back to variations, like, the, the basics of it are early war K-98s, flat butt plate, no sight hood, H, front band, milled, lower band, milled, retaining band, and some parts are in the white, right? The bayonet lugs should not be blued, the takedown disc should not be blued, the... Um, butt plate should not be blued, and the center uh, lug, you know, that little circle that you see in, like, the midsection of a K-98 should also be in the white, and the trigger guard should be milled, as should the floor plate. But people will care about the, you know, a one-centimeter blob on a camo smock and not realize that they're carrying a weapon made in 1944 for a 1942 event. You know, there are little levels of detail that are easy to swap out that people don't pick up on, and that's kind of what I'm referring to. Yeah, it's tricky. I remember when I got my 
K98, which is 1937, um, I did swap out, it had like a bolt, I think from a K98 AZ or something, I swapped it out for a correct K98 bolt, I swapped out the trigger guard because it had um, stamped parts where it should have been milled, um, but my K98 still does have a stock with a cupped butt plate because it was assembled you know, probably in a Romanian arsenal from parts or, you know, who knows? It could have been refurbished during the war. I, I don't know the history of this thing, and certainly I'm no expert on the K-98 in general. Um, but yeah, I think I think it is worth pointing out that depending on uh, what you want to do, there are additional levels of detail that can be scrutinized that um, certainly could be more important than whether a, a blob on a camo smock looks like a pinto bean or a kidney bean you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and a lot of these small corrections are you know one for one swaps of a part and they're utterly cosmetic and they can be changed back to what they originally were and so that's why i often encourage people you know when it comes to correcting their reenactment arm just try and make it look like not something that's been fully re-arsenaled and is a total Mix, like mix and match of random parts, right? So I, I know I brought up barrel bands before. If your rifle has um, the bayonet lug where it has milling marks or milled out sections in the middle and you're doing a 1940-41 impression, even through 42, I mean, you see these for the rest of the war, but swap that speed milled or stamped front barrel band with the ones that are milled in the shape of an H. You know, you, you compress the retaining spring and slide off the front barrel band and slide on the new one. Make sure it fits and works, and there you go. You've corrected an issue. Um, sight hoods are another one, right? If you're doing... A late war event, they should be issued with sight hoods. I mean, granted, you can find tons of pictures with no sight hood, and they did pop off really easily. But if you want to add it, add it to that rifle made after 1941, I believe, was when the cut was added. I'll have to check my reference material, but generally, you know, if they add a feature, it's not going to show up immediately. So that's when you start seeing those. And, you know, magazine trigger guards and floor plates, those things either are held in with a pin and a catch in a spring or just screw off you know you just unscrew the old magazine and trigger slash trigger guard or pop out the old floor plate floor plate excuse me and you know put the new one in and does it hurt the weapon no you can always take the old one and put it back in i mean for instance one of my k98s is a um dot 1945 so it's a check made k98 made actually after the war was over and it came with those uh, one of those trigger guards that's one piece, so it didn't have a separate floor plate for the magazine, and it had the winter trigger guard, you know, like with the big uh, trigger guard for, for mitten or gloved hands that you see in those post-war check rifles. Well, I kept that part. I kept the screws, so I went online and bought a correct, you know, late wars stamped um, magazine slash trigger guard and floor plate and put them in the rifle, and it looks correct for a Kriegsmodell, or a late war produced economy rifle versus looking like a post-war check thing. And all it's going to take me is five minutes with a screwdriver and a little bit of my time, and I'll swap those parts out. And one thing I would like to mention, though, for anybody doing any sort of work on firearms, is make sure you get hollow ground um, screwdriver bits. Don't be using 
the same type of screwdrivers that you use for general housework. Chris, I know you work a lot with heavy machinery and you're very familiar with various types of hand tools. When I say hollow ground, that means the screwdriver bit is like parallel on each side. Because whenever you look at screws and weapons, and I know I'm getting a little bit up, like way into minutiae and detail here, but when you use a wedge-shaped screwdriver in a, you know, a, uh, just a regular old screw, the points of contact on that screwdriver head are going to mush the, uh, the cut in that screw over time. And when you see those really banged-up screws, it's because people aren't using hollow ground uh, ones. So you can invest in a $50 armorer's um, bit set. You can get them on Amazon, anything like that, for weapons maintenance. And then you won't screw up your weapon like I did when I was 18, thinking I knew what I was doing. So that $50 investment has not munged up the screws on any of my rifles over the past 10 years. So that's just one additional thing I would add in. And I'm sure, Chris, since, once again, as I said, you're familiar with heavy machinery, if you're using punches, anything like that, make sure that they're not going to mar the metal if they're brass or aluminum, something like that. Something not as strong as steel, that way you're not going to destroy any bluing if there's anything on your collectible firearm, you know? So for anybody doing any of the work that I'm describing, put some thought into it, right? Because if you're going to mess up, a lot of the times it's because of the tools you're using or you're trying to rush it. Take your time, be patient, use the right tools, and read up on it before you try and execute anything. That's just my opinion, at least. I use a screwdriver set from a company called Chapman Manufacturing, and I actually got a set of screws, a set of bits that they put together for typewriter mechanics. And it's hollow ground bits, and um, I use this for all the stuff that I do. I use this for firearms. I use it for sewing machines. I've bought some other bits. They make them in... um, a huge range of widths and lengths so that you can buy a bit that exactly fits whatever screws you need to be working with. And it definitely saves these antique and often unique screws from damage from using uh, regular screwdrivers or worse, what I used to use, I used to just use screwdrivers uh, like from the dollar store. Um, and in fact, I still do use those sometimes where I will grind, I'll modify the dollar store screwdrivers by grinding them so that they are exactly what I need them to be. Um, but usually I use the, I use the bits from Chapman. You know, modifying a tool. I'm really happy that you brought that up because, um, I don't know the actual term, but maybe it's a spanner type nut, something like that, but you know, the, uh, recoil lug in the center of a K98, Kriegsenda used to sell a particular um, bit that would assist in taking that down. Otherwise, you'd have, you know, try and force the prongs of needle nose pliers into them and twist from there. But modifying some cheap screwdrivers from Harbor Freight or the dollar store or something like that sometimes can help you in anything firearms related in creating a custom tool to do a very specific job. And sometimes I feel that that makes the most sense. And I'm glad you brought it all back to typewriters, too, because those will have, you know, precision, fine threaded screws, just like you would see in some weapons. And you've got to be very careful with them to make sure you're not stripping the head or putting them in wrong and just munging up the screw entirely. So I'm very happy that you brought that up because that's something I, I actually forgot to write down and uh, to mention. So thanks. I think, though, that for larger projects, that 
that same mindset almost comes into play. Um, so, you know, we talked about swapping out small parts to make something look more believable towards the era it was manufactured, or like, let's say you have a Romanian capture and they have a the incorrect front barrel band from, you know, like a VZ-24 on a K98, like, yeah, it technically works, but it's wrong, so swap it out. Like, we went over how to change that stuff, but sometimes you do need to build your own tools for larger projects, and larger projects for me are things like stock refinishing, rebluing, which you can, in fact, do at home without extremely caustic chemicals, um, rust bluing, uh, conservative, or conservation boiling of parts and you know even building stuff you can do at home if you really create the right tools for it and this is going to sound really surprising but you know chris you and i are both from new england originally and so i'm sure you're familiar with a lobster boil right sure yeah clam boils I, i i do enjoy a good seafood boil and I haven't had seafood in the longest time because where I'm at, honestly, I do not trust it. But um, like a big stock pot, something like that. You know how you, uh, if you're boiling large amounts of seafood, you have the uh, the propane burner with like the big stainless steel. Um, I, I'm at loss for words. Like I don't want to say bucket, but you know what I mean. Pan, what what have you on top? Yeah. Those, those boilers themselves, if you combine those and build your own tool set here using a piece of gutter um, and get ends on each of it and fill it with uh, regular old water, you can use that to take the action of a firearm that has, you know, what I was calling patina earlier, you know, fine rust, and boil it. And what that process does is actually converts um, the red iron oxide which is covering the, the weapon as patina after you've degreased it, and it converts it to, I believe, Fe304, which is black iron oxide, which is actually what rust bluing is. So creating your own tools at home and just using something basic like a propane burner to boil some water and boil apart for you know 45 minutes can actually result in stopping decay and rust of your weapon and actually restoring a blued finish to it. And you can make that yourself for, you know, what's the cost of a propane burner? $25 and maybe $20 worth of parts rather than sending it off to a gunsmith who can do bluing to just essentially do the same thing. It's just called uh, cons- like conservation boiling of a, of a firearm. So that, that's like one little tool or I guess a set of tools that you can make yourself at home. Stockpot for smaller parts or build one out of a gutter. But really all you got to do is figure out how to boil it. Um, you know, we talked about swapping out parts when we're talking about small parts, like the floor plate or trigger guard, these things are available, right? Like people don't have to search for these things at a antique store or try to find them with a metal detector. There are like places that have stocks of these things that can be ordered. Um, they're usually not like super hard to find, right? No, uh, there are sellers on eBay where you can get a lot of these parts. The problem is on eBay, you're going to be paying a premium. Uh, there's one seller who I saw trying to sell a, uh, what was it? It was a front barrel band for like $200 or some insane, ridiculous amount of money. So I, you can look on eBay, but for a lot of those sellers that have a lot listed for high prices, unless you are looking for a specific serialized number, I would recommend against that. Forums are surprisingly still a good place to find parts if you're looking for something 
very specific, like you're trying to match a serial number to correct something on your rifle. But there are stores online such as um, Numrich, Sarco, I think BRP is another one. Chris, I know you've ordered some stuff from BRP, mostly accessories, I believe, for your ZB back when you were fielding that a little bit more often, um, like ammo cans, stuff like that. But Numrich is a great resource for firearms parts. They're located in New York and ship anywhere in the United States. I'm not sure about international. But if you're looking for these little parts, that's where you can get them. There's also Liberty Tree Collectors. And they often show pictures of, you know, what you're going to receive. So if you're looking for a small part, in general, you're going to be spending, you know, 25 to $50 on some of these parts. But if something is broken or you're just trying to do restorative work or correct a cosmetic issue to make your weapon correct to the era it was produced or that you're depicting, yeah, spending 50 to $75 is going to be in the range of what you need. And oftentimes there are parts that are new old stock that you can get. Um, Sorry to sort of divert off my path here. But, you know, when you look at things, anything mechanical, things that have physical wear on them from friction or anything like that are going to wear out faster than something that that just stays in place, right? So on a K98, the parts that wear out the fastest are going to be your firing pin, your firing pin spring, the caulking piece, and lastly, the safety lever, the safety flag that's on the back of a K98, because that thing is just held in place with friction, and you're literally turning it against a spring load in order to set the safety on the rifle. So those will wear out quick, and you know if we're on the topic of spare parts, I highly recommend keeping a, ro- a rolling stock of spares for yourself. I mean, it's just a best practice to have to invest fifty, seventy-five dollars in a new magazine spring, a new firing pin, a new firing pin spring, and a new flag safety, and maybe an extractor. You know, the big heavy one on the side of the bolt. Just because you know they don't make these parts anymore. Availability, I can't tell you if in five years you're still going to be able to find them. So now's the time to keep and maintain those parts. This isn't like holding on to a horde of rifle parts. I'm just talking about the bare minimum in order to keep your rifle firing and keep it functional in the context of this hobby. So that's where I would go for parts and what I would buy in what order, just so that you have the right spares on hand. Now, what if someone's listening to this and um, they have a, like a veteran bring back K98 that they're using or that they intend to use and, uh, you know, they're hearing us talk about how to improve this and they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to sand, I'm going to sand my stock, you know, is, (laughs) you know, like, I I think we should throw out there, like, there are things that you can do to these that do, you know, permanently change it, hurt the value. You can wreck these things depending on what you've got, right? Mm -hmm. A hundred percent. I mean, generally you're going to want to do the research on anything before you take it out into the field. And if you know something is a, hey, this is a bolt mismatch uh, veteran bring back in the state it was from World War II, I would leave it. Don't even think about bringing that thing into the field because you're, just, you're going to introduce moisture just by bringing it outside. 
um, carrying it around, sleeping in the field with it, leaving it outside in those little uh, rifle stacks, you know, outside your Zeltbahn. It's going to get morning dew. It's going to get rusty. Yeah, the first thing is if, if your weapon, if you know it holds significant collector or historical value, that's something I wouldn't bring out into the field. You know, that's step one. Things that will destroy the value of your weapon. Um, Chris, I'm glad you brought up sanding the stock. Stock refinishing is a project that you can do to improve a rifle, depending on whether or not it needs it. So Russian capture K98s, right? They come with a shellac or varnish finish, which is incorrect for World War II, so you have to strip it off and refinish the stock. A veteran bringback rifle that has the original finish, don't mess with it. The most I would do is wipe down the stock with a damp rag, just get any dust and dirt off of it, because you're not hurting the value by cleaning it and maintaining it, and then just store it properly in a cool, dry place long term. I mean, sanding a stock, unless it is something that really needs it or is like an unfinished piece, I recommend against it. And if you are going to sand it, like be light and gentle and because most of the time you don't need to actually sand a stock. I mean, I, I looked up recently how U.S. Um, 1903 Springfields and 1917 Enfields, how the stocks were finished for service in World War One. Um, there's a whole book on what the process was in actually building the 1903 Springfield from Springfield Armory. Like, you can read step by step. And for these... U.S. weapons, and I feel this can translate directly over to the K98 in wartime conditions. The stocks were sand, were you know milled out, sanded, like just enough passes to get the chatter marks of the stock making machine out, so they weren't sanded to a high polish. And then they were dipped once in boiled linseed oil and sent out. You know, like these are military weapons. They're not hunting weapons. They're not designed to be luxurious in any capacity. They are designed to be functional and work. So if you're going to try and improve something by taking sandpaper to it, think twice before you do. Another big challenge that I would see for people to overcome when they're trying to improve the look of something or make it just look better is putting on improper stock finishes, such as... um, True Oil is the name of one of them that I've seen used, and that's not so much a an oil finish, it's actually a hardening varnish, and yeah, it makes a smooth, shiny finish, but that's one, incorrect for a military-issued weapon, and two, just not right for a K98 in any sense of the word. Other things I see are people taking sandpaper to um, the metal, trying to get rust off. You know, I brought up doing conservation on the metal by boiling it and converting that rust back to bluing. You don't want to take a wire wheel to the metal to knock the rust off. Convert it after, well, degrease the the thing first with either acetone or brake cleaner, and then boil it, convert that rust, and then use degreased 4-aught steel wool to polish it. You know, you don't want to take any of this stuff to a wire wheel or a buffing wheel because you're just going to ruin the finish, ruin the collectability, and make it not look correct. You know, uh, something shiny and nice like that is not what you would see in the hands of a soldier. These things are meant to be not 
finished poorly, but they're meant to be... It's a utility weapon, right? And something even done to a utilitarian finish can still be innately beautiful. It can still have a high degree of polish or a high degree of you know, worksmanship put into it, but it's not what you would see on like an English hunting shotgun from the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. So you really need to contextually look at when was this thing made, why was it made, and does this make sense before I decide to kill the value on it? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of those things where um, this may be easier said than done, but I really do think that if somebody has a weapon and unless you really feel confident that you know everything kind of there is to know about it, it's best to consult with maybe somebody in your group or another reenactor friend who might have more knowledge about this stuff and who might be able to tell you, okay, yeah, this one is a, is a good candidate for stock refinishing versus um, this is something that you want to try to keep all original as much as you can. I agree 100%. And nothing can destroy a weapon faster than taking it to an event site like Newville or, you know, both you and I went to the Stalingrad event in 2020, just slamming things into concrete, banging it against stuff. It, it, you can break these things pretty easy. Even I've seen people are. break the stock, you know, oh, yeah. that's a worst case, kind of a worst case scenario, but that happens. Oh my God. We were actually both there when it happened, thinking about it. Yeah. So, uh, Willie, our friend Willie, um, he had Willie Graff. He had a K98. It was original stock, you know, live weapon, and we were doing bayonet drill against, if I can recall, it was bales of hay, like not even bales of straw, just bales of hay at an event in the winter in, I want to say, 2015. And, you know, he plunged the bayonet from the end of his rifle into the bale of hay, and just that action, for some reason, was enough to crack the stock at the wrist and he he just had a two-piece stock for the rest of the event and his weapon was toast i think he ended up having to ask a friend to you know buy a stock off of them because where that break was um it's it, you you can't fix it after well you can fix anything but that's a very arduous project and probably not worth it for something that had lost its collector value in the past but yeah I've seen it just crack in half, and you know, going back to what to look for, look for, and looking for deals, and just looking over something when you're going to buy it. If stocks have cracks or anything like that in them, look into what it takes to either repair it or replace the stock, because that can be something you can use as leverage to make something a greater deal. But if you don't know how to fix it, it can become a liability in the field, and you'd rather own and maintain an asset and not carry around a liability if that makes any sense. Paul, we are going to run out of time here, but I wanted to make sure before we go here to talk about defarbing like a Denix K98. Um, what is kind of your thought and process on doing that? Okay. So it's similar to what you look at for a Russian capture or any sort of post-war use K98. Denix K98s or Airsoft ones, you got to look at the real thing, look at pictures, handle a real one. The quick and dirty way to do it, right, is the butt plates on Denix or Airsoft should be in the white, so just grind off, sand off, scrub off the finish on the butt plate. The bolt disassembly disc, which is that little disc in the stock, that should also be in the white, so leaving that as bare metal is true, is the way you should do it. Um, the stocks themselves are often going to have a 
a poly or shellac finish, so scrape that off, stain it, and give it an oil finish. And another thing I would do is the metal on Denix and uh, a lot of airsoft replicas is usually a zinc based pop metal, anything like that. I would get creative in using paints or uh, maybe graphite and then clear coat over the base metal to give it give it more the appearance of blued steel. Or alternatively, you can strike it white and use a product such as cold blue to refinish those things. And getting back to real weapons, I don't recommend cold blue on full refinishes on it. It's a temporary product made for touch-ups and not for full refinishes, so please don't use that on your collectible, you know, real firearms. But for the Denix ones, those are the routes to go. You can also swap some of the small parts with real ones on some of them. So like the uh, front barrel band on a Denix and the bayonet lug, I believe, are actually just one mated part. So if you replace the um, bayonet lug and front barrel band on the stock of a Denix with a real one, it could improve the functionality and realistic look of it. One thing to always never forget as well is the... um, the sling itself, you know, have a good quality sling on any of these things, and that also improves the look. But for Denix ones, it's really just going and making the metal look a, a little bit used. This is when sandpaper and steel wool, scotch brite can be your friend. Don't use that stuff in the metal of your live firearm. But on a Denix, that's exi- that would be the route I take, and just beat it up a little bit, but don't make it look like something that survived an apocalypse. <laughs> We'd take out some of our pictures from our events and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and, you know, they would say, oh, I, I don't remember who this was, or I, and then we would say, oh, no, no, like, th- that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win. It is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. Yeah, I've always loved helmets from World War II and that has snowballed into, I want to get a helmet from every country from World War II. I'm insane. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right, Paul, we are out of time. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your insight on this today. It's been great talking to you and uh, hope you stay safe. And I really look forward to reenacting with you again when you get back. I look forward to reenacting with you too, Chris. Hopefully it's not too hot the season I return because... I'll tell you one thing. I'm longing for the snow. I haven't seen it in a year. <laughs> yeah, it's right outside my window right now. What a difference uh, the two places where we happen to be at the moment. So, awesome. Anyway, uh, thanks again, Paul. And thank you also to everyone who supports us via Patreon. Without your help and support, we wouldn't be able to keep this podcast running. Um, so to Paul and everybody out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field, guys. We love hearing what you think about the podcast, so why not reach out to us on Facebook or Discord? Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air, and you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactor's Corner. <laughs>